Well, I guess we could try this again. I guess so. I gotta feel bad for all the people out there. They're gonna miss out on the stories about the buffalo and big coal and hunting people <laughs> with big nostrils. And Maybe that was part of the problem. Maybe they don't want it anyone else to know that's that's forbidden knowledge big coal yeah. is what took down the internet here in tallahassee i was gonna say <laughs> is your is your isp in, in bed with big coal I, it, it might be it might be i'm staying in a major hotel chain tonight oh yeah yeah that'll do it could absolutely be that So uh, today we're going to start with part one of our series on the deposit of faith. Um, Those uh, those three episodes are going to be about scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. And obviously, those three things are going to go hand in hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Fact is kind of like a tripod to hold us up. Um, But you know, a a lot of the times when when we're when we're discussing or having ecumenical discussions. It's 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 usually scripture is a point of of contention because of course you know there's this belief that, that the Bible has always been around um, and I mean nobody really believes this but they kind of they tend to act this way that that the that the Bible has always been around that Jesus spoke in in Old English and uh, you know we we always use these and thous. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Which is not the truth. That's not where the scripture came from. Um, so obviously, you know, some of the biggest points, you know, are, are going to be like how many books we have, how we interpret it, that kind of thing. But uh, James, you had some points earlier. We can catch those again. <laughs> well, I, I guess the largest thing I was talking about some was. How the interesting thing is arguing about things like what's in scripture isn't necessarily a new thing. The Jews had the same problem sometimes among themselves. And this is part of the reason why we have different lists of what books are in the Bible is Catholics and Orthodox Christians are using an older list that came out of the Jewish diaspora um, based on a translation of the Old Testament into Greek in, I believe, the second century BC. And then the Protestant movement ended up embracing a later and pared down list of books for the Old Testament that was devised sometime, we believe, in the second century AD. And one of the points I observed about that is it was kind of ironic because. Part of the reason why certain books cut out of that later list was that they were heavily associated with this heretical movement that believed that the Messiah had come and instead of conquering and kicking out the Romans, he had died for our sins and risen from the dead and crazy stuff like that. And so kind of ironically, you have a lot of Christians whose list of what books are in the Old Testament is kind of informed by Jews rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. It is interesting because there's a there's a marked difference between Temple Judaism, which Jesus would have grown up in, which ended roughly around 90 AD, give or take, or 70 AD. I'm sorry, um, 
and and from there you have kind of this this split of, of if I remember correctly, Karaite Judaism and Rabbinical Judaism in the next century, and there's this this difference in philosophies. And if I remember correctly, the majority of the, the reformers took from Rabbinical Judaism predominantly. Um, although we do have some some interesting things with American Restorationists, like uh, the Seventh Day Adventists, they followed the the Karaite Jewish calendar to try to tell us when Christ was going to come back and they ended up being wrong, but that's a completely different subject for another time. Um, I guess one of the things we can point out too is that those, those separate books, I know growing up, we called them the Apocrypha. Um, it wasn't until pretty late in life that I found out that nobody that I knew that was Catholic knew what I was talking about. Yes. So we know what the word Apocrypha means. I, I think when a lot of people use the word apocrypha to describe books that Catholic and Orthodox Christians consider to be scripture, they think the term apocrypha means it's just some writing that isn't authoritative. Uh, apocrypha actually means something else. Right. It's actually related to the word apocalypse. The word apocalypse, again, a word that's kind of changed meaning for a lot of people. It means an unveiling. So what's apocryphal is kind of the opposite. It's what is hidden, what is still veiled. And so a work is referred to as apocryphal when you don't really know where it came from. And the thing is, when it comes to a lot of the books that people call apocryphal, um, we, we actually have a better idea of where they came from than some of the books that are actually in the Old Testament. Like we have the names of some of the authors in many cases. So they're, they're not just scripture. They're also not apocryphal. They're not apocrypha. Right. And of course, we call that the Deuterocanon, or the yeah. second canon, which is, is another point of contention because people think that it's, it's, it's good. It's good for teaching, but it's not good for being authoritative, which I find very interesting for one big reason. Um, the, the the current one of the current big holidays in Judaism is Hanukkah, which is not a fast or feast either from the writings of Moses. It was a secondary holiday that was instituted by the Maccabees, which of course we have first and second Maccabees in our Deuterocanon, whereas to the Protestants. A lot of them now are trying to celebrate things like Hanukkah and other, other fasts or feasts that may have come secondarily in Jewish society due to tradition, but they rejected the books that they're located in. It's, it's, it kind of it, it bewilders my mind when I, now that I know this. Of course, growing up, I had no clue. I didn't know what, what was going on. Um, because the word of God was the word of God. And for a long time, the only word of God was the King James only. <laughs> and if, if you don't speak English, well, that's just too bad. Jesus was, was, was an English-speaking Jewish guy in the first century AD. Yeah. I know people who are King James onlyists, And honestly, that's a position that baffles me. Having a strong preference for a translation, I get that. 
but people who will say that that's the only translation where the spirit really speaks to you well i guess if you were born before 1600 or you were born after 1600 and don't speak english i god really doesn't want to speak to you through the word he just kind of especially from a soul scriptura standpoint he's just kind of indifferent to your salvation i guess yeah so you getting into Sola Scriptura, um, what is it that the, the, the church actually teaches about things like Sola Scriptura, Solo Scriptura, or Prima Scriptura? Um, because I know that those are the three main viewpoints from the Protestant um, aspect, which, of course, you know, most of our listeners are going to know what Sola Scriptura means, which is the scripture alone. Um, Prima Scriptura. I would give that. I'm not sure I would grant that. Really? Because having waded into the trenches of ecumenical dialogue, I have found that a lot of people, they might know that the word means scripture alone, but they don't understand it as meaning scripture alone. What they understand it as meaning is scripture. And I've known lots of people, including very intelligent, well-educated people who believe sola scriptura should be understood to mean scripture is authoritative not that scripture alone is authoritative that's not how they understand it um and that, that might sound a little weird given that that's the little literal meaning of it but for an example i know people who will look at the church fathers and they'll see well here's a church father who's quoting scripture that right there is sola scriptura and so when they see a catholic who rejects sola scriptura what they're thinking is this Catholic rejects scripture, which is a pretty crazy way of thinking, but I know people I respect who thought like that, including I had a college professor who made that exact argument that someone was relying heavily on scripture, therefore that was sola scriptura. Now that's not what the reformers meant by it. That's not what any sane translation of it would mean, but I found a lot of peepsage scriptura they just are meaning that scripture is authoritative period so it's not as clear as i would like it to be well that's where you're getting a lot of this this shifting into from sola to solo scriptura which of course means only scripture um meaning that there is like basically we reject all the traditions that the only thing only thing that we need to go by is the bible mm-hmm. where it's pretty straightforward that we need tradition because tradition is what gave us the scripture. Yeah, and that's, that's its own major conversation that you more or less have to start this entire conversation on because there is a fundamental dis- disagreement on a basic historical fact that the Christian religion does not come out of the Bible. The Bible came out of the Christian religion. Mm-hmm. Now, it came out of the Christian religion with inspiration. It is God-breathed. It is authoritative. But it came out of Christianity. Christianity didn't come out of the Bible. And the only way to do that is to construct your own personal Christianity, uh, which Scripture would call a man-made tradition instead of following the faith that gave us the Bible. That's a historical fact. A faith gave us the Bible. 
or at least the faith gave us the New Testament, if you want to be precise. I mean, that makes sense, considering the fact that when you take a look at the dating of the, the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is considered to be the earliest of the four. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the second, of course, in Scripture, but it's the earliest of the four. Most scholars actually date that to between 66 and 74 A.D., being physically written down. Those are like our earliest copies of it. Now, of course, the, the gospel spread through, you know, oral tradition. There's that word again. Um, for several years, because obviously we're looking at, what is that, a, at minimum 36 years? Yeah, during that time, somebody was preaching about what Christ did and what he taught and what it all meant without a written biography of Jesus to point to and say, well, this writing says it, therefore it's true. They were doing something else. So that goes to prove your point right there is that that obviously there were Christians prior to that that particular gospel being written down. And I would I would think that we would all agree that the foundation of the Christian faith is found in the gospel. You know, the good news of Christ. Um, that's that is the basis of it, is that we we understand that Jesus came. He was he was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He he preached the coming of the kingdom of God. He died for our sins. He was buried for three days and rose again. And he's coming back for us. That's you know, short sweet. Uh, Unprotestant creed, I guess you can say, but <laughs> we um, we have in the Apostles' Creed and, and the Nicene Creed, they both talk about that, and very specifically, the Gospel is the central focus of that. Um, so it's odd to think that that people, I guess, people thought that you could just walk into some ancient bookstore and purchase a, a scroll, a Torah scroll with an accompanying New Testament scroll, you know. When that mm-hmm. just isn't the case. Yeah, especially today, we fail to appreciate. Uh, we are an extraordinarily literate culture in material and educational terms. Now, at times it might not seem like it. I mean, there, there are studies about how the average American adult only reads at a fourth or fifth grade level. But still, when you compare that to antiquity, and the Middle Ages, for the most part, we live in a society in which books are ubiquitous. You know, I am not a wealthy individual. My family lives in a one-bedroom apartment, and we have a bookshelf. Okay, imagine the world for three-quarters of Christian history. Most people can't read. Many of those who can probably don't even own a book. Uh, for, for most of this time, the idea of you owning your own personal copy of the entire Bible, it was insanely expensive because you don't have the printing press. Someone has to sit down and write it all out by hand. The laborious process. There were monks where they dedicated their entire lives to doing this. So th- this... So we look back and we think, well, yeah, it was a religion where everybody had a Bible. They looked at their Bible, and I'm, I'm sorry, it wasn't like that. That's a beautiful thing that we have it now, but it was simply impossible 
for 1,500 years of the Christian religion. I mean, even longer than that, quite honestly. Well, yeah, if you want to look back before that, uh, the Jews, the Jews had a uniquely scriptural religion that they had these books of the law and the prophets and various other writings that were held as holy and would be read devotionally. But even among them, still copies were limited. Literacy, uh, their literacy rates were among the highest in the, in the uh, world at the time, but still the average person wouldn't have been able to read a whole lot. Well, I mean, even if you take a look at the, at the Jewish religion, as a whole, from the time of Moses to the time of Malachi, which is roughly the time that that um, most of our Protestant friends will take as as the Old Testament time period, because of course we have the additional seven books that take place between those two. Um, you're looking at at a progression where certain books weren't available always, but the 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 five major ones from from the time of Moses on have always been the Pentateuch or the 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 um the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um and and that's that's what they had, the majority. That was the book of the law. So yeah, your average synagogue out away from the temple, um, you you would probably have that. So your average synagogue you would have probably five books of what we consider to be the Bible. Now, whether you believe the Bible 66 books or 73, that's a small fraction, but that was an amazing accomplishment that they were evil, even able to do that. Because that's the kind of world we're talking about Christianity coming out of. And quite honestly, when you take a look at books like 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, um, Ezra and Nehemiah, these books are, are written along the same lines as the, the seven books of the, the Deuterocanon. Um, it, it's interesting because a lot of these are historical books that, while yes, there's spiritual significance to them and there's they are inspired by God, they're no less inspired by God than these other ones here, mm -hmm. if we're talking about that. Marcus, you're being pretty quiet tonight. Oh, no, I'm just enjoying the conversation. <laughs> But I guess if I could uh, chime in about one thing, you know, uh, when we were discussing, you know, what does Apocrypha mean? Uh, in my experience, it's very interesting how so many people, at least from my experience, of course, uh, have decided to bundle together, of course, our deuterocanonical books alongside with the, I guess you could say the Gnostic text, the Nag Hammadi text, the, uh, the Apocalypse of Peter and you know, those those secondary texts that didn't make their way to the canon for whatever reason that people want to assume. Um, it's just, it's just to me, it's very interesting because when you do read those texts, you could uh, definitely tell there's a divergence in teaching compared to what we know as the true faith. Yeah, so that's an interesting point, this question of how do you approach these writings when it comes to teachings that differ between them. Uh, because after all, there must be some sort of process of determining what writing do you consider to be holy scripture, holy writ, inspired by God. And the interesting thing about the early church is although it took 
until almost the end of the fourth century for there to be a final absolute list that was more or less universally accepted. Um, over that time between uh, the writing of these various texts and that formation of universal list, there was this gradual process of people sorting out what books they believed should be considered scripture and what weren't. And the curious thing is, is the test that ended up more or less being accepted was first, is this text associated with an apostle? Either you know, we believe it was written by an apostle or perhaps by a student or close associate of an apostle. Mm -hmm. The other thing was, does this agree with church teaching? So ironically, when it comes to how do we get scripture, which a lot of people say should be alone, our tests were essentially tradition and magisterium. Is this something that we got from the apostles? And does this agree with what the church teaches? <laughs> that was how people came to scripture uh, when they were doing this kind of organic process of sorting this out. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a lot of people want to set up the system where church authority and the tradition are somehow opposed to scripture when, you know, quite the contrary, they support each other. And in this case, literally is the historical process was tradition and magisterium setting up the scriptures as we know them. It's interesting, just throwing out a, a date here. Um, I know that that a lot of people don't understand where the actual list of scriptures came from. You know, the Lord didn't come down off of Mount Sinai, you know, pointing out to the Jews in front of Moses the, the scriptures on those tablets. You know, that's not, he didn't give us a table of contents before it got written. So it's interesting that if you take a look at the, um, the, the various different like synods of the, the fourth century um, and a few of the, the, the councils and such, we had uh, St. Augustine um, who had proceeded over this particular council that gave us the definitive list of books. So it had been discussed at the, the Council of Hippo and at the, the Council of Carthage, St. Augustine and the, the Holy Men of God that were there, the bishops, they were like, okay, well, here they are. Here are these, this is your table of contents. This is what we're going with. And interestingly enough, the last book to make it in was the book of Revelation. Yeah, up to that point, you know, everybody had been working on their lists. And when I say that, I don't mean like individuals at home were deciding what was scripture. What really this meant was in each city, the bishop would have the list of books that were acceptable for use in worship. But there were disagreements between these lists. And that was why you had this major get together in Hippo and then in Carthage to finalize things. Uh, because while it was the church in Africa that was hosting it, you had the church in Rome, the church in Antioch, the church in Alexandria, all coming with their own people. because um, Those were the big three at the time, and they were trying to sort out their lists here. 
And one of the huge things that they couldn't agree on until this point was Revelation, because Revelation's really weird. It's a book of prophecy in the New Testament. It's got all kinds of things that people interpret wildly and get themselves into trouble over. So what do you do with that? You know, a lot of people wanted to throw it out. They thought it was crazy. Hey, James, what do we call that book in the, the Catholic Church? So the traditional name of it isn't actually Revelation. The traditional name is the Apocalypse of St. John. Which goes back to what we were talking about earlier. That's why I wanted to bring that okay. up. Is that that's how we get the, the word Revelation quite literally is synonymous with that. So um, yeah. yeah, once again, this is going to be a podcast a little bit about semantics because that's an interesting transformation that this this text was first called the Apocalypse because this was an unveiling to St. John of what's going to happen at the consummation of the world. And some would argue uh, things beforehand that foreshadow that. And over time, because that was the word applied to this prophetic text that was in, in, in its heart about the end of the world, that apocalypse became synonymous with the end of the world. It, it's uh, it, linguistically, it's fascinating how words change meaning like that. But sometimes when you're talking about theology and the development of other things, it gets to be a headache. It's kind of an interesting point of contention, too, that I found from other people speaking about going back to uh, the canon and how we decided it. There was not a dogmatic statement made on the canon of Scripture until Trent. Um, it might be a good idea to discuss what is and what is not a dogmatic statement in the Catholic Church so that our friends can better understand what happened at Trent. Right. So you'll hear some people where they've got a bizarre sense of this where the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent, which is the mid-16th century, puts together a list of books and says, this is the canon of the scriptures. And they did this as a dogmatic statement, which, is, which means that you are obliged to believe this as revealed truth. You cannot divert from this opinion in favor of your own personal feelings unless you basically want to stray into heresy. It's, it's interesting that, again, going back to that, that a lot of people think that a dogmatic statement is similar to a doctrinal statement in the, in the, there's a little bit of contention there. Like understanding what a doctrinal statement in the Catholic Church is versus what's a doctrinal statement in, say, like a Baptist church. A Baptist church would have doctrines like we have dogmas. Like this is what we believe. There's no turning away from it. There's no twisting it. There's no turning it. That's exactly what we believe. And the, the interesting thing about, um, about the Council of Trent, too, is that it can really be seen as the anti-Protestant or anti-Reformation council. Um, and defining that scripture and saying, hey, this is the, the dogmatically accepted canon of scripture talks a lot to what happened with Martin Luther. Uh, he tried to remove, if I remember correctly, both the book of James and the book of Revelation. Yeah, from his like, uh, four books in the New Testament he wanted to remove or at least demote to a secondary uh, position. So this was the epistle of St. James. 
and Revelation you mentioned as well, but also the letter to St. Uh, Jude and uh, the letter to the Hebrews also you wanted to get rid of. Marcus, I know that you recently had a good conversation about the book of James and why. Um, did you want to talk about that? Oh, sure. Um, yes. So, of course, when it comes to the book of James, a lot of people have a lot of, uh, I guess to say, it's very interesting because if you want to be scripture alone, right, and you read the verses themselves, then we, okay, so one of the main tenets we have to assume, but we, we, we take it on faith that, that the Bible will never contradict itself. And we affirm that as because it is the uh, the word of God. Now, in in many instances, many people will try to have a sense of precedence of how to interpret one scripture compared to another. So a lot of times uh, with the uh, some Protestant uh, uh, reformers that I've been in uh, dialogue with, we'll, we'll call it that, um, they they like to subvert James to Paul. Even sometimes they want to subvert the words of Christ himself to Paul because they want to always enforce the idea of things being done through faith alone. And so when you get to James 2.24, where he's talking about how Abraham was justified by his works, you know, there is so much of a mental, I guess you could say, it's a lot, it's a balancing act, really. It's a lot of mental gymnastics to try to weasel around these different uh ideas when james himself even earlier in chapter two he says faith without works is dead okay there's there's that that i don't know how much more simple you want to put it but james is very clear faith without works is dead and so a lot of people will say oh you have to think of it as you have to have faith in order to do works right and so they want to sub Sounds like we're losing Marcos there. Well, while we're, while we're waiting on him to hopefully get back, um, I just realized I started a point a few minutes ago and then forgot to complete it. <laughs> uh, talking about dogmatic statements, because um, I, I was starting to say uh, that a lot of people, they look at Trent and where it was defined there and they think, well, that's when the Catholic Church decided that this was so. And before that, it was open season. Uh, but this is another misunderstanding about dogmatic statements. Uh, the Catholic Church doesn't make dogmatic statements to establish something new. The Church makes dogmatic statements in order to establish what was already taught and believed. You know, just like when it came to the question of how are we saved, the Council of Trent made dogmatic definitions. That's not because it was making up a new doctrine of salvation, but because it was defining and establishing what had already been believed and why Luther's teaching was such a big deal was that this was already believed. Um, well, there's, so, there's the issue of, of contention there a lot of the times as well, that there's, there's a point of contention where it needs to be stated, this is exactly what we believe. Yeah, that's usually what happens is you have church teaching that's there. Somebody contends against it, and that's when the church gathers in council to sort things out and establish officially, this is the teaching of the church that you are bound to. 
So it's, it's not a new thing. And so for in the example of scripture, that doesn't mean as some propagandists want to say that the church added these books at Trent to shore up its position. Quite the con, Christians have been using these books from the very beginning. This was the Old Testament of the apostolic church that we've been using for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And occasionally there have been little debates about this, but it was generally accepted. It was only with Martin Luther that there was this major rebellion against it, saying, no, this isn't scripture, and also this other stuff might not be scripture. And because of that, the church made a dogmatic statement reaffirming what was already believed and already practiced for over a thousand years. So do we have Marcos back? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. All right. So, so you were saying, Marcos. So where did I leave off, where, or at least what was I last in, uh, able to be heard? You were just talking about how a lot of people handle, uh, you know, being sola scriptura and also trying to wrangle with what they think of the contradiction between Paul and James. Right. Right. And so... Yeah, that's the thing. And to me, you know, if we're going to be full-on sola scriptura, we're not going to use any kind of exegesis. We're not going to follow the words of Luther or Calvin. We're going to take the Bible at its word alone. When James says faith without works is dead, that, that kind of just says it all to me. I mean, I don't know how people want to uh, overly justify that, that, oh, James is just speaking about people who are performing works after they're saved or... James is only talking to people who are essentially in the Jewish population, the Jewish converts of the faith. But, you know, the word of the Lord is, is universal. So when, when James says faith without works is dead, that to me is not just speaking to the Jews who were converted at the time, but also to all the Gentiles and everyone who reads the word of God. But, um, and, and, you know, it's just, it's just interesting because, you know, of course people will talk about Galatians or, Ephesians and Romans 3.28, where, you know, by we're saved by faith alone, right? That's, that's how some people try to uh, translate it. And it's very interesting how at times you'll find, you know, instances of, you know, these, these interesting, uh, I wouldn't say call it deviations of translation, but, you know, we, I guess we can even, if you want to transition to translations in a little bit of the scripture and how that has affected the idea of doctrine and dogma we can do that if you want well just on to touch on sola fide for a second yeah go ahead you know, um that was added by luther the the he he was stated he was quoted as saying that the idea of salvation by faith alone was an understood point so he added it into his translation if you go look at the king james version it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, just throwing this out there, when you're looking at that, man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. It's not saying without good works. It's saying without following the law by every jot and tittle. Just doing this isn't enough. You actually have to have faith as well. But again, as James says, faith without works is dead. Even the devil believes, right. trembles, but he definitely doesn't do good. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is where we affirm that, you know, I, I like to do these moments where we're kind of turning the tables on the reformers. 
because the reformers, they stood up and on this point, they're like, we're standing for the authority of scripture. However, we believe scripture contradicts scripture, so this scripture we're gonna kind of ignore. Now, okay, they wouldn't put it in those terms, but that's de facto what they're doing. Whereas as Catholics, we are obliged to believe that all of scripture is scripture. It is God-breathed, it is inspired, it is authoritative. And so when Paul is talking about salvation by faith, not merited by our works, and James talks about how we are justified by our works and not by faith alone, you know, if you are going to affirm that Scripture is authoritative, you have to believe both. You have to find a way that they are both true. Mm -hmm. And so many non-Catholic Christians will say, well, Paul's right, and James must be talking about something else entirely. Whereas it seems to be only when you're looking at the apostolic communities, the ones running on tradition as well as Scripture, like the Catholic Church, where we're saying, yeah, you're brought into salvation, you're born again by faith, you can't merit that. And beyond that, there is merit by doing good works. You do advance and entrench your salvation. And these verses are both absolutely 100% true because we believe in scripture. It's our book. We gave it to you. Well, it's, like, it's again, it goes back to what we said last week, both and, not right. either or. Because again, it's, it's understood that, okay, in the mass, and guys, it's been a while since I've been to a Roman mass, so forgive me. Um, it, if I'm correct in the words of consecration and the prayers, it talks about that it's not by our merits, but the merit of Christ mm -hmm. that allows us to merit. Um, so there's a lot of this where, where people think again, going back to justification, salvation, that kind of thing that we think that we can of our own selves, like a Pelagian would, that we can outside of scripture and tradition and faith and everything else we can save ourselves that's not true at all that's not what we're talking about here these works are just like a fruit tree that's planted you know if you plant an apple tree you're not going to get bananas right if you plant an apple tree you're going to get apples a christian produces certain fruits a christian does certain good deeds that's what they do they do it because of what christ did for them and these things go hand in hand it's the natural progression and growth of the Christian. Um, if you're not doing good works, I would have to ask you why not. If God has planted in you an apple tree and you just decide, I'm not going to produce apples, well, the scripture has some terms for that and they involve an axe. So, you know, again, listen to the scriptures. We, the Catholic Church did not codify the scriptures and give them to Protestant Christians so that they could ignore those verses. And it's, it's important to know that when we keep saying that we gave the, the scripture to you, it's because, again, scripture took time to compile. I mm -hmm. even Luther acknowledged this. Luther acknowledged that it was from the Catholic Church that he could claim to receive the scriptures, that he hadn't just pulled it out of a hole in the ground like Mormons believe of Joseph Smith but that the church had assembled these texts, that the church's first generation had written them in the first place when it comes to the New Testament mm -hmm. and preserved it over all this time. I mean, I know so many people 
where they have all kinds of crazy ideas about how the Catholic Church perverted Christianity, yet they have no trouble with the fact that the Catholic Church was the custodian of the scriptures, apart from any Protestant, for all the time up until the Protestant Reformation. So at the very least, God was willing to work through his church to preserve the scriptures, at the very least. Um, well, that's unless you, that's, that, that's you unless you want to follow the, uh, something more. that's unless you want to follow the trail of blood and Baptist successionism. Um, there there are no a, historical grounds for that. I, I hate that theory because I am a history guy and they always point to sex as being the precursors of true Bible-believing Christians, and they always point to sects that, in reality, they would reject large parts of the Bible, or they held to doctrines that, you know, we would agree both are abominable. I mean, my favorite example are the Cathars, who were essentially a glorified suicide cult. <laughs> I just don't do that. Don't do that. There, there, there are proto-Protestants in the 15th century, maybe a little bit in the 14th century, but you're talking about individual teachers who don't get a whole lot of traction. You're not talking about there are underground churches for 1,500 years who are preserving some sort of secret, true faith. Well, and a lot of that too, though, like you're looking at Wycliffe, who was coming out of the Church of England. Yeah. Um, I, so, so automatically like you've got a guy who's wanting to reform a church that was based off of adultery I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hurt anybody's feelings here and I, I do apologize if i do but you know you've got a guy who very specifically wasn't granted a divorce by the pope so he decided to go make his own church you know and and you're gonna have these guys that that want to reform that church because they see the evils that are inherent in that as well i i've i've heard a well, of the phrase about- Someone like Wycliffe, that was before all that. That was before Henry VIII. Was I think it? you're, I think you're dealing with Tyndale. 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 That's it. I'm sorry. Tyndale. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're getting into the mess there. That is the information. I apologize. I apologize. It was Tyndale. Yeah. Yeah. That's the English Reformation is not a proud event. I mean, other Reformations I could see being proud of it if you come at it from a certain premise, but the English Reformation, I'm sorry, that was a mess. That was an unholy debacle. There's, schism breeds schism, is what it does. Like, yeah. the more that you divide things, the easier it is to divide them, um, just quite honestly. And, you know, uh, since we're speaking about Tyndale, I think it'd be good to t- speak about, because I know a lot of people make memes, right, that the Catholic Church didn't want anyone to own the Bible, that we wanted to just burn them all, right? Burn all the vernacular, leave yes. them all in the modern the Latin. And uh, let's go ahead and clarify some things. Tyndale uh, was not the first to write a vernacular English version of the Bible, neither was Wycliffe, right? The thing is, is that a lot of times people took liberties in when it came to translating certain terms and certain phrases in the Bible to justify their own doctrinal biases. And Tyndale was notorious for having altered several texts in the Bible to suit his own anti-clerical uh, viewpoints. Now, what's interesting is that the Bibles that were burned were Tyndale's translations, and in any translation that did not accord to the you know the true script. And what's interesting is that Henry VIII 
not only once, but he condemned Tyndale twice. And I think it was about the second time or probably a little bit later that Tyndale was burned as a heretic. He was at, uh, executed as a heretic because of the numerous, uh, a lot of times they claimed it's not, not necessarily blasphemy, but it was a lot of sacrilege that he did with the, the word of God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, translating the scriptures, a, a lot of people who aren't familiar with multiple languages fail to appreciate that translation is not an easy one-to-one -one process. Vocabularies aren't always one-to-one. -one. When you're choosing a translation for a word, you frequently have options. And some of them may indicate one meaning. Other options may indicate another meaning. And whatever you choose is going to come out of your own prejudices. And sometimes people will even stretch a translation to get there. And so, yeah, people will point to these examples of the Catholic Church burned Bibles. They burned Bibles where people had taken this problem and had gone overboard with it, with Bibles that were translated explicitly to back up a bizarre theological stance. In many cases, including beliefs that even the average Protestant today would say is crazy and unbiblical. As I remember, that involved the Cathars as well. I'm sorry, what was that? Yeah, that in, in France, right, in France. It, the, it involved the Cathars. Yeah, because yeah, the Cathars were, the Cathars were crazy. They believed a lot of things that were way out of step with Christianity. Mm. They, they made the Mormons look like, they made the Mormons look like grad trads, I guess you might say. <laughs> they, they, were, they were out there. And so you had sects like this who would come up with a new doctrine and they would translate the Bible, typically horribly mangling it in the process to get the beliefs that they had come into it believing were true. But it doesn't even have to have malice. It can just be a simple matter of, I take for granted that certain things are true. Mm -hmm. I'm going to translate the Bible in a way that's a reasonable translation from what I know. And we get into this with a number of words in scripture, uh, a lot of Greek words especially. Yes. Uh, like we talked about last episode in the context of marriage, how you translate the word porneia. Well, if you go into this assuming that divorce is a broadly applicable thing to Christian marriages, you're going to translate that differently than someone who goes into it with the attitude of marriage cannot be dissolved if it is truly sacramental. Or an example of um, you know, so some of the words having to do with the Lord's real presence in, in the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. There are words there you can translate one way or another to make it seem more or less like he's really there. Justification, we talked about some of the words that you can translate one way or the other. And, and this is one of the problems you have when it's scripture alone is when you're going into translating your own assumptions about what the bible means are going to be fed into the bible now are those assumptions informed by something that has always preserved the faith given to the apostles by jesus christ or are you going into it with your own doctrinal presumptions your own theology your your own man-made tradition and it's one of the reasons why we have so many 
translations that sometimes seem to disagree and contradict each other yes. people going in with these these innovative you now in this context it's a bad word you don't want to be making up new doctrines that these new doctrinal standpoints that they read into their translations in this you get something different interestingly enough um marcus and i were talking about this not too long ago there's a new translation um i guess you can call it a translation called the passion translation um it's a relatively new project and what's going on is you've got an individual who has no real translation background um who's going in using his very skewed doctrinal foundations uh, and 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 twisting scripture to fit what he thinks it should say um because in in some cases especially in the especially when you're using words from Greek or Aramaic or some of the Semitic languages, words can mean different things in different places in a, in, a, in a sentence. But that doesn't mean that that word means all of those things in a sentence. Does that make sense? Like if just because a word means multiple things in different in different cases and whatnot, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can always translate that. And, and again, if you go in looking at these things, from your skewed point of view, without a an objective viewpoint on it, it's it's going to get skewed towards your doctrinal beliefs. It's going to happen. Um, we see that every, but again, we see that every Sunday in pulpits across America, in the Protestant churches, because um, you have Pastor Josh over at First Baptist who can preach on John one one. And you'll have Pastor James over at the Pentecostal church across the street preaching on the same thing. And they're gonna they're going to, by their own interpretation, use that to preach a sermon. And it may or may not be right, but it's this whole this whole idea that, that we can we can as individuals interpret the scripture however we feel like we should. And that's a big problem. Oh, I completely agree. And you know, it's I, there's some people who, and of course, like probably this is not necessarily like divination or anything of the sort, but I know there are a lot of people that, you know, they, they pray to God for guidance and then they'll open up the Bible and they'll read a verse, you know, wherever they open the Bible and see if they can find a verse that's relevant to their experience. And, you know, of course we have to be, we have to be hopeful that the word of God will be instructed to them at that point. But, at the same time, you know, there are some people that read in so many things. They'll, they'll take a snippet from Ezekiel and uh, put a little bit with Malachi, and then all of a sudden we have an interpretation of the, uh, what was it? I remember growing up that people would make fun of uh, some of these televangelists that would, you know, they would come up with all sorts of scriptures that will justify the, you know, desert storm, right, in the early 90s, or they'll justify the, the war on terror in the in the early 2000s you know and all these you know like all the biblical prophecy being fulfilled and i'm like oh okay sure i mean prophecy is hard enough to interpret when you're not proof texting right As a, I mean, the thing is so much has changed over history with our approach to scripture today so many people they go to scripture and you pluck out a verse and the verse exists in isolation Right. But I, the very idea of having numbered verses, that's not that old. 
Uh, I think that came during the Reformation, correct? That, yeah, that, was... that was part of the Reformation process. Is on both sides, you ended up with this uh, system systematized numbering of verses, so they could better cite things against each other. But I, I'm always particularly shocked when I look at ancient church commentaries on Scripture, because that is totally foreign to how they read it. Mm -hmm. You know, for them, yes, all scripture is interconnected, but you don't pull a verse from here and a verse from here and a verse from here. And that's your new theology that you can be absolutely sure of because private interpretation is definitely a good thing. And, I mean, you also get some totally different trends with how you read scripture because you've lost so much in the transition towards this kind of uh, bizarre reading. Uh, one, of my, one of the best examples of this is a lot of people have a very superficial approach to scripture because um, i mean there's this issue of inerrancy mm -hmm. it's kind of it's connected to this question of is the bible authoritative and you know we as catholics would say yeah the bible does not contain error everything it teaches when it comes to faith and morals is true but a lot of people they've got this idea of inerrancy where the most superficial reading has to be factually precise, even in weird ways that set up contradictions that mm -hmm. have nothing to do with what the biblical author was intending and what the church would tell us the passage means. Uh, you get this to a certain degree in the New Testament where people will say, well, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus in this gospel and the genealogy of Jesus in this gospel, there are some discrepancies. And people, they, they almost drive themselves nuts trying to figure out how these can both be on a very superficial level, factually precise, because they need it. And in the process, they lose the entire sense of why the genealogies are set up in certain ways. Uh, get this all over the place in the Old Testament. I mean, as Catholics, if you look at the first couple of chapters of Genesis, a Catholic is free to interpret that literally or allegorically so long as you are maintaining the spiritual truths thereof. Yes. Now, I know people who are on either camp, and I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you which one I believe, not yet at least. Uh, maybe that'll come up in the future. But I've run into Protestant communities where it's an article of faith. You have to read it this way, otherwise you don't believe in the Bible. And sometimes you even see it kind of both ways. Like you see more liberal churches where it's like an article of faith that it must be allegorical, that you can't read this literally. And I always find that funny with so many people, they look at the Catholic church and they say, oh, you've defined so many doctrines or so many things I have to believe or I'm a heretic. Da, 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 da. And then you have things like this where like you are bound to read <laughs> exactly one way, no divergence whatsoever, even in things that have nothing to do with the spiritual truth thereof or you're a heretic, or some would say you're not even a Christian because you don't believe the Bible. Uh, there are so many great things that are lost when people approach that because there are deeper ways of approaching scripture that contain so much meaning. Uh, one thing I encourage people to look into is typological readings. Uh, for a lot of the early church, when they're reading the Old Testament, the question of historicity was secondary to them. Um, in particular, I remember reading through Gregory of Nyssa's commentary on Exodus. And to him, 
whether the events described took place historically was irrelevant. And he took for granted that, yeah, this is a historical story, but for him, what's the point of the story? Is that every element of it points ahead to Christ. I, I, it just, I, I think we've lost so much with this product of Sola Scriptura where we're trying to proof text instead of really look into the meaning of these texts and what it has to say about the rest of scripture. Anyway, end rant. <laughs> I, I just kind of piggybacking onto that. Um, my personal rant is about context. Um, if, if you only look at, at the epistles in the context of what they're, they particularly are written, then you're not seeing and understanding the whole nature of of the church's message to you from that time period, if that makes sense. Like you need to look at it in the context of the book of Acts. You need to look at it in the context of the gospel and in the context of the Old Testament. Yeah, context is not just the verses surrounding it. No. To understand, like for example, I think we've all talked about this before. There's an interesting um, context about the book of Esther. The book of Esther actually is kind of out of place for most of the scripture. You know, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, it talks about God. It talks about, about the people of God, but it's not, it's not like Ezra and Nehemiah where the, we went up to the, the mountain of the Lord and we prayed and all That's not quite what it was. It just, it kind of sits in scripture kind of oddly. But when you look at it in context of what it is, it's the story. It's a continuation of the King Saul and his rejection of God's command, where he was commanded to completely and utter, utterly destroy Agag and all of his household and everything. And because he didn't do that later on, one of his future um, descendants, that being of Agag, came against the children of Israel and tried to wipe them out. Um, it, it's interesting that if you don't see the context of, of Esther, it doesn't tell you the full story because why is Haman mad? You know, why does he hate the Jews so much? But if you know the context, you can better understand it. It's like, oh, wow. You know, God was trying to save his people all the way back here. It's always about the, the understanding that God has a purpose for what he's trying to tell us to do. Um, that context is important. But the other thing, too, is the context, like we've talked about before on the podcast, is um, the context of Mary. Understanding the Catholic doctrine the, the Catholic doctrines and dogmas on Mary and Mariology in general, you have to understand the context of what kind of culture she was from. And, and the fact that if Jesus is the king, then she, of course, is the queen mother. So understanding context is, is, is huge. And sometimes I think we look at it too, uh, too narrowly in, in that case, instead of looking at it more so broadly as the full scripture from beginning to end. I completely agree. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just also talking about what James was speaking about, inerrancy. Uh, you know, what's interesting, the, the deeper you go into scriptures, uh, scripture is that sometimes you'll see some things that look very, very obviously contradictory. And um, when it comes to inerrancy, if we want to be like literal, factual inerrancy that, you know, all four gospel writers should have wrote the same exact thing, you know, or... Um, and we have like, you know, it looks like there's contradictions because one gospel will say there were, uh, Jesus was crucified with uh, 
a good thief and a bad thief. Other in the, the other gospel has no mention of the, um, you know the the. Uh, or, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus died, when he gave up his spirit, um, we had a a little resurrection of the dead occurring, but no one else talks about. It. You know, none of the none of the other three gospel writers speak about it, and you find some other things that would be like apparent contradictions and and even more so especially when you compare kings and chronicles you have numerical contradictions because sometimes they'll say eight hundred thousand troops were here and then king says no it's really three hundred thousand and so you you have to understand what's happening and you know the the bible you know especially the old testament was a historically evolving document and we have to we ha i think we have to take into account some of those things as well in in, in the formation of uh of the scripture you have to take a look at fallibility too. Mm -hmm. So the word of God is infallible, correct? Yeah. There's yes. Fallacy found it, but the people who wrote it are not. The people who wrote it, like when you take a look at at John versus like John's gospel is completely different than the other three. Right. And a lot of that has to deal with because John was right there beside Jesus. He probably didn't see some of the things. I mean, obviously, like he would have heard about them, but he's speaking to and 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 more often than not, that the stuff that he was there watching Jesus do. And he he spoke to what he thought was important. Mm -hmm. The other three, I mean, if you take a look at the the nature of who they were, you've got Luke was a doctor, Matthew was a, a tax collector. So each of them are going to have two different points of view as to how they would write something. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, Mark really, it's it's it can be said that Mark is really the the... The Gospel of Peter, um, with John Mark being his nephew, um, and being a convert under him, most likely, that more than likely he heard all these these things from Peter, is uh, my understanding of of the history of it. But that's you know, it's important to know that these guys are going to see things differently mm -hmm. than than what each each of the other one would have. And in some cases, like with Luke, he wasn't one of the twelve. So he wouldn't have been there right beside everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important to understand what the Christian doctrine about biblical inspiration entails and what it does not. A lot of people have this idea where because we talk about the Holy Spirit as being the true author, that this means that God dictated to these people word for word, and that's how we got the Bible. Now, there is a religion that teaches that about its scriptures, but it's not Christianity, that's Islam. Now, Islam teaches an angel of God came and dictated the Quran word for word, but that's not what Christianity teaches. We believe, yes, all scripture is God-breathed, but if you treat it as though <laughs> each one of these people are just kind of these puppets without a hand of their own, I mean, you're, you're practically just walking into the traps set by a lot of atheist apologists. Right. Because they'll latch on to these things, and they have a lot of success, especially with fundamentalists, because the fundamentalist attitude doesn't allow for these kinds of things to exist in Scripture. It all has to be kind of ignored or swept under the rug. Whereas the Catholic view, the, the traditional view coming from the church of all these centuries, it allows for Scripture to be totally authoritative, inerrant, infallible, 
and also to have these quirks that people sometimes get caught up on. You can have both. If you put if you put the three of us into a room and had us observe the same thing, each one of us is going to have a different observation. Oh, of it. most definitely. Yeah. It's it, and I mean, even though the the three of us think along the same lines, what's important to us and the things that we really catch are going to be completely different. But the beautiful part about it is, it get, it can be synergized into a complete story. And I think that's the beautiful part about the Bible is that although there are parts that almost seem contradictory no it's just it's it's different people seeing things different ways but it all comes together to kind of give us a complete view of the story of god you know of, of the gospel from start to finish and i think that's actually more beautiful than thinking that god sat down and you know whispered in people's ears through the holy spirit to write down exact words prophets where the Lord spoke through the prophets, but we don't have that in, in the cases of, of some of the other books. Yeah. And uh, real quick, I guess we're all on board, right? That the New Testament was is predominantly Greek, correct? Predominantly. There, there are a couple of books where it looks like there might've been kind of a concurrent writing of a Greek copy and maybe a Hebrew copy. Like, I think some people think that happened with Matthew because Matthew was written very much for a Jewish audience. Um, but yeah, primarily it's Greek. Greek is the copies we have. Greek, Greek is predominant in the manuscripts we have. Greek was the lingua franca of that world. I mean, honestly, it's kind of like English is today. You know, you might go to oddball corners of the world and people don't natively speak English, but a lot of them speak English because it's the language of business, of travel, in some bizarre way, culture, if you can call it culture. But yeah, that was Greek at the time. And that's why, you know, this is an interesting thing. We were talking about that Septuagint version of the Bible. That was Greek too. Mm -hmm. And why Paul was able to go to these communities, which were often a mix of Jews and Gentiles, and that you know, most of the Jews wouldn't have sp spoken Hebrew in these communities out in the Mediterranean. Almost none of the Gentiles would have for sure. And he's telling them, oh, look at these things in the scriptures. It's because it's in Greek. It's because a translation was made in Greek, providentially, I would say, so that you would have the, this, this perfect setup for the spread of the gospel. Well, Jesus came right at the crux of, the, of, of history. Yes, I absolutely believe it. If, if you, I mean, th this could almost be an episode on its own, but if you look at the centuries before Christ, it's like everything is lining up for him to come. And I, I mean back to like six or 700 BC in places as far flung as India. It's, it's interesting how, how God made his, made his word accessible to that point. Um, he allowed his people to be spread out far enough to where, you know, guys like Paul, um, guys like Peter would go out and, and preach to these, these, these children of Israel. Um, he could go out and preach to them and have scriptures that they could access and people outside their community could access people who had never heard of the one God. Uh, I mean, a lot of people hear Catholics poo-pooing soul scripture and they think, oh, so you don't think scripture is important. Nonsense. Scripture was an essential part 
of God's plan for the spread of the good news, it continues to be to this day. That is fundamental. But it's important to understand, again, tradition played such a hard, hard line uh, part in, in, in the evolution of Scripture. Yes. That the two have an equal footing to the Catholic. Yeah, and I mean, even before Christianity, before you can talk about the Holy Spirit driving the church, you look at the things that are happening among the Jews with the scriptures, I very much believe that was providential. That's one of the reasons why the Septuagint was the Old Testament of the early church and continues to be the basis of our canon, is because you have this moment where a scripture translation comes out with a set of books that so many people have access to, and for so many people is a doorway into the faith. I mean, that's why you go to all these places and you have references to Gentiles who fear God. You know, that was code for Gentiles who were kind of Jewish but weren't in on all the law stuff. Why was that possible? Because providentially, this version of the scripture was there for them to look at and go like, whoa, this makes so much more sense than Zeus diddling a goose. Oddly enough, too, I wanted to throw out a couple of things um, as critiques of solo scripture. Um, I found a little bit from uh, a Catholic writer by the name of Dave Armstrong. He referenced a few points that, that are kind of interesting. Um, there's, there's a few things in the New Testament that just don't necessarily fall in line with the solo scripture angle. One of them is um, there's a reference where it says that he shall be, speaking of Jesus, he shall be called a Nazarene. Um, and that it was spoken of by the prophets in Matthew chapter 2, 23. Um, this is considered to be the word of God, meaning that the prophets spoke it, therefore they, they spoke for God. But we can't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. That was an oral tradition. Um, it talks about in uh, Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 through 3, that the scribes and Pharisees had a legitimate and binding authority based on the seat of Moses. But we don't have that anywhere in the Old Testament as well. But it's actually found in the Mishnah, which is an oral tradition. So just a couple things to kind of to throw out there that the, the idea of tradition and scripture going hand in hand, it's nothing new. It didn't happen when, when supposedly Constantine uh, established the Catholic Church in, at the Council of Nicaea. That's not when this happened. You know, this has been the case all the way back to, to, to countless ages. You know, Jesus spoke of things that, that were, were traditions as well, not just the, the literal written down word of God. And, you know, and that, that's a very interesting point, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, when, when John says at the end of his gospel, you know, he says that there were, if he had written everything, there would be enough, there won't be enough uh, room in the world to fill the, you know, the tomes of his writings, right? Yeah. And, you know, in, in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, Jesus says, you know, observe all I have commanded, you know, and the thing is, and, and in, in written scripture, right, not all that Jesus taught is in scripture, because, for example, when when Jesus uh, speaks in parables, it, a few times he does explain the parables to the disciples, but oftentimes that the, the, the parable goes on without explanation. It, you know, it's kind of like it's an, there's an implied meaning there, 
but we don't ever truly get the the like I guess you say that the the, the ultimate teaching from it. I guess you got you know there's a lot of things that are that are you know to be followed essentially. Um, well, a, a, a fun one I like to cite is if you ask people what their favorite saying of Jesus is in the top ten of your survey, you're going to hear it is better to give than to receive. Now here's the interesting thing. Flip through the Gospels. Nowhere in the Gospels is that recorded as having been said. Does that mean someone made it up? Hardly. In the very early church, we have references to this as being one of the sayings of Jesus that weren't recorded in the Gospels. So clearly there were things that weren't written in the Gospels that Jesus truly said and taught and did that were received to this day, to the point that almost everybody initially probably didn't think, oh yeah, that's not in the Gospels. Uh, we, we didn't get that by Scripture. Scripture is you know, absolutely wonderful for what it's there for. But when we say that Scripture's there for more than it's there for, you're going to get into trouble. It's like trying to take a slice of ham and make a tuna sandwich. You know, ham is perfect at being ham. Scripture is perfect at being scripture. But so many people want to replace things that, that just aren't supposed to be scripture with scripture. And, you know, it, it's like trying to have a stool with one leg. It's not going to work. And in fact, the point I like to make is if, you understand authority for a Christian as being like a stool and your only leg is scripture. If you're going to stay upright, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to put out your own legs to keep yourself afloat. Well, think about it. If all you claim to have is scripture, what you're really saying is I've gotten the written text plus my interpretation mm -hmm. and plus whatever prejudices have entered into my life to form that interpretation. You can claim it's sola scriptura all you want, but the fact of the matter is you can't have scripture alone. The question is, are you going to support your scripture with the faith that was received from the apostles mm -hmm. and served by the Holy Spirit through the Catholic Church, or are you going to prop it up with your own presumptions and your own wonderful human infallible wisdom at figuring things out yourself. Of those two approaches, I think one is definitely preferable. Amen. Amen. Uh, and you know, the thing, I just wanted to just throw this out there. You know, even in Luke, in the beginning of Luke chapter one, it says right here, you know, and this is the thing that's the, the main kicker for me. Uh, Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us, I too, meaning Luke, decide, have decided after investigating everything accurately and new to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most ex excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. Okay, that, that last one, verse 4, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. So the scripture... Here is, I guess you could say, is to to uh, provide some clout for the oral tradition that preceded its writing. It's, it's obvious that, that 
that if we're talking about going back to the Jesus and his works being recorded, okay? Mm -hmm. So we take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, we only get about a chapter of. And quite honestly, like if we were to just read that right now, it would probably take up about five minutes. If we read it, if we just to read it out loud. Jesus was speaking a lot longer than that, of course. And we know that because people got hungry. Um, you don't get hungry after five minutes. You know, that's just, just, just throwing that out there. Um, we, we know that there is more things there. So I wanted to bring up just a little bit of an interesting point of view. Um, and this is just something I've been kind of throwing around recently. With the concept of sola scriptura or sola scriptura, you know, both of them are kind of, they're to me, they're almost like two sides of the same coin. Do you ever wonder if it becomes or comes to a point where the Bible becomes an idol in some people's lives? Because I, I when, we're, when we're talking about the word, where, like, for example, in John chapter 1, where it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, the same as in the beginning with God, all things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. So we're talking about the eternal logos there. We're talking about Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, that word is logos. A lot of people, though, equate that same thing with the Bible. Right. Those The, the word, they, they conflate the two, right? Right. So do you think that it, it can come time, sometimes come down to idolizing a book rather than worshiping the creator? I think it can in my mind, this is actually a little bit like what we talked about in the first episode about Mary. Now, we've all talked about how the Marian teachings of the Catholic Church are not at all idolatrous. But I think we would all admit that if they are warped, if somebody twists them out of shape, you can get something that is idolatrous. I think a lot of that is what you're talking about here with the Bible. You know, most Protestant Christians, I believe, they have what we would call a great devotion to the Bible. And we should have a great devotion to the Bible. But yes, having great devotion to something other than God does create the possibility of someone who has a twisted idea of raising the word to be like the eternal word. Now here's the difference. In the Catholic Church, you have a body that can step in and say, no, these practices are idolatrous you do not cross this line. We don't worship Mary as a goddess. In Protestant communities where frequently you are more or less determining the content of the faith for yourself, you don't have the same guardrails. You might have you know, the basic concept of, well, I'm only supposed to worship God. But <laughs> you know, without that guidance, it may actually be easier to, in different ways, conflate the Bible with God or to raise it to a stature greater than it actually should have as a created work. I, I, I wouldn't throw out the accusation willy-nilly. No, no, I, no I, wouldn't, I wasn't trying to. Yeah, and I, I know you weren't trying to, but I think it is out there. Yeah, because I, I'll just throw this out there. This, this is the reason why. I've been recently going through it and for the website. For those of you who haven't visited, it's... Uh, catholicparadox.com. We each uh, write a little bit here and there and uh, post articles and whatnot. And, and one of the ones I've been working on recently is my conversion story. Um, every, every Thursday night at youth service, we would, uh, we'd raise our Bibles. Mm -hmm. And it was really important to bring your Bible. 
uh, we would get extra points in our, our discipleship group for having our Bibles with us. And, and it would, it would give us all these special perks or whatever, but we'd always pray this prayer. It's like, this is my Bible. What it says I can have, I can have. What it says I can do, I can do. Lord, speak to me tonight through my Bible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I believe with that, and that mostly, you know, I do believe that God's going to speak to you through the, through his word. Absolutely. But is it true that what the Bible says I can have, I can't have? Is it true what the Bible says I can do, I can do? Is that really true? Because I, I know a lot of people, and again, there are certain things that, that were promised in Scripture. There are certain things that, that were given in Scripture, certain assurances and whatnot. But, you know, I know people who want to pray the, the prayer of Jabez, O oh Lord, enlarge my borders. You know, is that, <laughs> is that really for everybody? Because I've, I've come to find out something in the, just in my personal life. Not every Scripture that's in that Bible was written to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that goes back to the context thing. Oh, I I, I agree. The uh, for me, the uh, one of the the major things is that sometimes, um, for example, some people might see a way to vent using. Uh, some people call it psalmistry. Psalmistry is like you know, if you wanted to go into like ma- people trying to associate magical workings with the psalms, praying the psalms of David for a certain effect, you know? So some people will like to pray a Psalm of, uh, of vengeance, right? Psalm 108, Psalm 109 in the, so some, you know, of course in the Satuagint numbering, it will be 108, Psalm 109 in the, you know, the Masoretic text. And it's, that's probably one of the most severe Psalms in the Bible because, you know, David, something happened to David and he was literally invoking all the curses upon the wrongdoers who had, who had insulted him. So you, you read that psalm, it, it, it's, it's not a pleasant song. I think it's one of the few psalms that does not have a musical rendition. And I think, I think someone tried to put it musically and they couldn't match the words with the beautiful tones because it, it's a very severe psalm. But, um, you know, there are some people that, like you were saying, you know, Eddie, that, that you know, they want to appropriate these prayers, these, these, uh, these things as, as, as if they're, they're their own words to God. And, um, you know, it, it sometimes perhaps the emotion matches, right? You know, and of course, the the, the Psalms that, that give praise to God, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul. You know, like I think that's Psalm 102, Psalm 101. Uh, and, you know, those are beautiful prayers. And of course, we pray those at Mass in the in the, in the the Roman Rite. We, we pray those. We always have a responsorial Psalm. And for the most part, they're always uh, either praying for mercy, the mercy of the Lord or for to praise the Lord our God and that that's okay because you're worshiping the Lord and you're just using prayers that someone else a, a song that someone else had written you know thousands of years before you but whenever it's turned into something that is going to be uh in a sense magical or superstitious that's when you have to draw the line like for example thinking that oh, I'm gonna pray this psalm and it's going to help me remove my headache right supposedly or uh, even more so you have people who take the words of Christ out of context and you ha- and you end up with the prosperity gospel. And so then you have like, ask and you shall receive, you know, and you knock and you shall be opened, you know, and then that, that, that goes into its own little current as well. That goes a lot into free will as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, I know that you and I have both had conversations about this this week where 
where there are those people that think that we have absolutely no free will and in, in, in the case of our salvation and that's a this is a whole other subject that we'll get into later on but um what it comes down to is like when jesus looks at somebody and says go and send them more is that literally what's going to happen right did they get sanctified to the point where they do not have any more sinful tendencies that's a it's a you know a lot of people if you want to interpret literally you want to hope you want to hopefully say that they they never sin no more but who's to yeah, that's the, we have no record that yeah. that ever happened, you know. Right. <laughs> so we we have we have to take a look at it again, going back to context and interpretation. The beautiful thing about the Catholic Church, and this is really what this all boils down to, the Catholic Church has the the trifold ministry of the deposit of faith, where it's the, the scripture, tradition, and the magis magisterium. We have the tradition of the church fathers and the saints that have come before us that have studied deeply into the scripture probably more deeply than any of us ever will today and we have all of that there to refer to and we of course we have the magisterium with the catechism and of course with the the uh, the leadership there that help us to know what sound interpretation is you know these are not just not just one person it's not pastor josh at first baptist church down the road you know that just says come up with something brand new or or pastor james down at pentecost church across the street it's a, you just don't have that that's um, job. <laughs> what's that? I know so many people where that's their idea is that the Pope reads the Bible and tells us what it means. <laughs> now, I know a lot of pastors that way. I'm in Protestant communities, especially the more evangelical ones, but that's not how the papacy works. <laughs> Ex cathedra is not the Catholic version of the Sola Scripture. Right. No, yeah. no, no. And, you know, it's very interesting, you know, even though the Catholic Church, you know, especially if you deal with some traditional Catholics, they want to say the true English translation of the Bible is the Douay Rhymes Bible, okay? And it, it's very interesting because at some point, sometimes that kind of starts veering towards kind of like the Protestant form, which is the King James Version only movement, you know, that 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 that's the only authoritative translation of the scriptures and, and nothing else could, should compare. Well, the, the problem is, is that people forget, and, and again, context isn't, needs to be explained, that the, the Dewey Reigns and the King James Version pretty accurately, I'm not going to say most accurately, um, but pretty accurately translated the English of that day. But here we are now. English is much different than it was four or five hundred years ago. Unlike Latin and Koine Greek and Aramaic, English is not a dead language. So as our language it evolves, words begin to mean different things. Just like the word, we've, we've talked about this before, the word vicious. Mm -hmm. It, it literally has its root in the word vice. But typically, whenever I talk about something being vicious, people don't think that I'm talking about a bikini. They think I'm talking about a dog attacking something. Yeah, right. So it's important to understand those things, that it's not necessarily that, that our interpretations are bad. Maybe it's just the fact that our language has evolved away from what that means. Maybe we should take a look at that and better understanding. Rather than trying to interpret into today's language always maybe we should take a look back and understand what those words meant back then and then look and, and see you know what i mean I, I think that's a good idea but well of course 
and of course, and uh, another thing too is that nowadays, I'm mean, you know some people would would try to try to you know throw a wrench at us for this, but uh, you know when when Saint Jerome compiled the Vulgate, he had the best texts that were available to him at the time, and you know one can say that you know especially after you know the nineteen you know the nineteen thirties uh, nineteen forties when we started having all these you know like a, kind of like a like a little resurgence with the onset of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and other types of uh, you know ancient texts that were well preserved people started to look for the actual texts of the Bible themselves versus you know just looking at a, an esteemed translation of the text as well and go ahead. It, no, it just amazes me that that people want to harshly judge the Vulgate, but it's it's like the guy lived back in 382 AD. He didn't have yay old Google. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he didn't, you know, there was no GoDaddy site that he could go to to, to you know, and, and I mean, it's, we have to understand again, he did the best with what he could mm-hmm. and it was inspired by God to do so. Like, God has led his church to to bring the word of God to his people since the very beginning. So we have to understand that it's it's not it's it's far from a perfect translation because as you both said earlier, some words just don't exist in other languages. Right. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, it's it's not like English to Spanish where a lot of our words are are very much the same. Right, we have cognates, you know, and they mm-hmm. there's an easy correlation Oh, I mean, take for example, I speak a little bit of Arabic, of course, being from the Eastern Eastern Church. Um, typically, a word has a triconsonantal base. So take, for example, the word for beautiful, um, when, when speaking about a, a young lady, would be jamila. The, the word for a male would be jamil. But they all find their same root word as the word jamal or camel. So... The understanding is that the root jin, min, lam, they all come together to form words that have some type of beauty within them. Of course, being physically attractive for a male or a female, but the camel has a certain beauty to it because of what what it represents in that culture mm-hmm. and the understanding of that. So, but we don't have that type of formulaic uh, creation of words in English. We have root words, and that's pretty much about it. But we don't have like these these triconsonantal family trees of words, like Semitic languages do. Which it's important to understand that, again, the language that Jesus spoke was a Semitic language, is Aramaic or Hebrew, one of the two. And he probably spoke a little bit of Greek as well. So it's 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 good to understand that we're never necessarily going to have an exact perfect translation of it. Right. But we have to still do our best. You know, we can't Absolutely. be. Uh, William Tyndale, if anyone wanted to know what did he, what were some of the words that he got in trouble for translating, um, you know, he had, uh, he, he took it upon himself to translate the term baptism into washing. He, he's uh, one of the first to convert the word scripture into writing. He referenced the Holy Ghost as Holy Wind. Um, priest- I can see where he came up with that, but wow. Yeah, uh, heresy. Any mention of the word heresy in in the the New Testament was rendered as choice. Martyr became witness, and evangelist became just the bearer of good news. So, there you go. A lot of those work as very literal translations. Yet at the same time, you're mangling the text. 
Right. Especially, um, so martyr as witness. Yeah, witness is the literal meaning of the word martyr, but come on, you know, the word <laughs> martyr means something special. It's taken on a special meaning. And you right. can't just wash that out of scripture. What was the one before that you said? Uh, heresy into choice. Yeah, I mean, literally, yeah, that's the origin of the word heresy. Is this, this is something you've chosen to believe instead of what is true. But for Pete's sakes, that's that's not why we have the word heresy in Christianity. <laughs> we have it to emphasize that this is bad. This is a bad choice because you're choosing against the revealed truth of God. Uh, I mean, this just goes to show that this is why we need guidance because we can go so astray. Um, oh, well, speaking of scriptures and that, you know, the Bible does say all we like sheep have gone astray. Yeah, there, there, there are so many scriptural paradigms that go way astray. Like, um, I have a friend who occasionally strays into, um, I don't know if there's a term for this because I it's kind of related to hyper dispensationalism, but it's not quite the same thing as far as I can tell. The idea is that everything that happens in the Gospels up to the crucifixion of Christ isn't really relevant for us Christians because the New Covenant hadn't been ratified yet, so all that stuff was for people under the law. So, for example, the Lord's Prayer shouldn't be prayed by, prayed by Christians. That's for Jews under the law. Now, Thanks be to God, I imagine most people hearing this, whether they're Catholic or Protestant, are going to go, what? What? But it has a perverse logic to it that if you don't have guidance, you might fall prey to. You know, again, I have a friend who sometimes falls into this, and he's not a stupid man. And he's certainly not a, a bad-meaning man. He, he very much loves the Lord. But, you know, think of when you when you leave a ship without a rudder, how far adrift you can get, I mean that's that's pretty bad right there. <laughs> um, but I mean that one, it's also a matter of historical context. If you know the history of the scriptures, you can see how many of these methods are wrong. Um, and and again, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. So many people have an ahistorical view of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Understand? I was just you know Christians went out into the world and they had the Bible. No, no, like people were sitting down years after the gospel was being preached in, into the known world and writing this down later for communities that already existed to elaborate, teach and defend a faith that already existed. And, you know, that, include writing, that included writing down the gospels. Uh, so they, they sat down and expended a lot of resources, a lot of time, took a lot of risks to write down these things that some people now say, well, they're not really relevant to Christians. Okay, come on, really? <laughs> well, it's it's a it's a bad understanding of when Jesus said, "For I've come not to abolish the law, but rather to complete it." Yeah, yeah. There, there's another related thing, and I've seen people who draw up that as a contradiction between Jesus and Paul, because Paul is talking about freedom from the law, and Jesus is talking about not abolishing the the law and how not a letter will pass from it, and you know, things like that. But the law the law exists simply because we need to understand what sin is. That doesn't just because the sin just because the the law exists doesn't necessarily mean that we are bound to have to follow every bit of it. Christ came to redeem us. 
Christ yeah. came to free us from that. Yeah, so on the surface level, it seems to set up a paradox until you get to a deeper understanding of this. But the problem is you're talking about a religion that isn't for just the smartest people out there who, you know, not only have the intellectual capacity, but also the time and the resources to sit there with these passages of scripture and figure it out and, you know, be smart enough to get it right. It's meant for everyone. So mm -hmm. is it really reasonable to believe that Christianity is just meant to come out of the Bible and you're supposed to just read the Bible and discern the truth because it's obviously right there? Well, no, because people look at puzzles like that. They get confused and they end up adrift. But because they know their reading of the, of the scripture is the meaning of scripture and that alone is authoritative, there's no correcting them. I mean, what, what do you do with a ship that doesn't have a rudder and also the captain is sure that the ship is guided by God? <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you're screwed. You're going to hit some nasty rocks. You have to have the tradition and, and, and the leadership to help guide you. You have to. Um, it's, it's odd, though. And this is going to kind of come out more so, I think, next week in, in the next episode about tradition. It, it's odd that people can reject our ones that go all the way back to the apostles and beforehand in some cases, but cling so heavily to ones that are less than 500 years old. And you know, oh, uh, yeah. go ahead, James, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to agree with that, Ian. Yeah, I've, I've observed that. You know, uh, there is a pastor in my town that loves to somehow rail against the ever-changing traditions of the church, which is, to me, the biggest irony, because th this pastor has has altered his his services in, in so many ways. Like, he tries to be like another Hillsong, in a sense. So every every day is a. I mean, I haven't been to any of his services, but from what I've heard from people, like every every week is a, its own little production or show, and the format's different. You know, it's a little innovation here and there. Um, you know, it's literally like playing it by ear. You know, playing the gospel by ear, which is you know kind of like ironic because for him to criticize the church for changing its traditions, I'm just kind of like, well, what has changed? And you know, like. You know, it's, it's, this is a confusion I find in all kinds of places, and maybe a lot of this is that we're not very, very precise in our language. When Catholics speak of tradition with a capital T, mm -hmm. we do not mean the same thing as what is customarily meant by traditions, plural with a little t. You know, we're not like Tevia and Fiddler on the Roof, tradition, tradition you will marry Lazar Wolf because that's the way things have always been. And that's not what we mean by tradition. We don't just mean any old custom that's been around for a long time. Uh, we'll get into this more next episode. Of course, yeah. When we say tradition, what we mean is the faith that has been passed on from Jesus Christ through the apostles, through all the generations of the faithful that has preserved the true faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, all the way to today. It is the living faith preserved by the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean by tradition. Yeah. In and of that 
that plays a big role into the concept of apostolic or apostolic succession. Yes, as well. Yeah. That, that when we talk about apostolic succession, succession, we're not just talking about from from bishop to priest to 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 priest to people. We're talking about all of it, like the entire deposit of faith that we've gotten from them, scripture and tradition both coming down. That's part of the apostolic succession. So. It's it's a beautiful thing that we have in the Bible, but it's mm -hmm. good to understand that it's it's just one part of the Christian life. Right. And I, before we finish, Neil, we were talking about briefly how words change the meaning, and uh, we have to we have to thank Tyndale once again. We have to thank Tyndale for his his uh, crusade to remove the word charity from the New Testament. It was it was from his hand that he. And uh, tried to render all versions of love, you know, as you know, we we in, in the Greek term, I think we we could say that there are three types. Right? We have philios, we have eros, and agape. And Tyndale said, you know what, love is love, and so we're going to go ahead translate it all as love. So when you read, you know, First Corinthians chapter thirteen, you know, if I have no, this is where how a lot of our Bibles now say, you know, if I have no. Um, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, yeah. I have not love. Right. But in the, the prior to that, you know, of course, the Latin translation of agape was caritas, and that's where we get the word charity. And uh, so have I not charity, you know, you know, all that is. So nowadays, of course, what do we think of when we have the word charity pop up? Charity is pretty much money. Alms, right. Alms giving, right. Money. And so. That's where you have this weird distortion when you try to read older texts. It said you think of charity. I'm like, what? What? What is? I mean, what are these people like? If I, do I just give money to the poor and I'm fine? No, <laughs> the, the 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 idea is that you know you have this you know this love for God above all things, the selfless love for God, and and that's that's where you get end up getting lost because of course like what we were saying that James brought it up too. There are some words that are just poorly translated into English. So, yeah, there's quite a few then. Culture changes. I mean, I, I and the word love in our culture, so oh, is for eros. Mm -hmm. So you you're looking at all these verses about love, and you're thinking about the love between a man and a woman that's ordered towards the procreation of children. Uh, we'll put it that way. Um, you end up with some very weird impressions. Um, <laughs> you know, intellectually, no, that's not what love means here. It's like some part of our subconscious is like, ew, what? <laughs> and of course, you get people who will then take things that are about love more generally, and they'll read it solely in that context, like a lot of verses that are commonly read at weddings, where it's like, okay, you know, love is patient, love is kind. I mean, yeah, that applies as in the context of a marriage, but Paul's not really talking about your marriage. No, he's actually, it's interesting. Aquinas has a, a, a saying in the Summa that, I, that really, really touched my life a lot whenever I was still a Protestant. And it kind of set me on the path towards, towards the church and it dealt in charity. And he said, man should not consider his material possessions as his own, but as common to all. So as to share with them without hesitation when others are in need. That's where charity has kind of taken that, that, that detour is that it's understanding that, that really we need to give not just, just our material things, but also our, our love, our care, compassion to people without wanting anything in return. 
you know, it's a very altruistic uh, care and lack of apathy is really what they're talking about there rather than, you know, again, the love between a man and a woman. Because, you know, I love you guys, but, you know, I don't love you like I love the girl I'm going to marry, you know? Um, and it is, it's tough sometimes to, to get away from, from using those, those terms. And I think that's actually gotten us into a lot of trouble here culturally. Um, when we, we see things like, um, sayings like love is love, but it's not, you know, there are different types of love and we need to understand what is ordered and what is disordered. Um, and that's a, that's a different conversation for another day, but it's good to understand that we, you know, we have the scripture, we have the tradition, and we have the magisterium to help us understand those things. So, you know, it's, it's been a great talk today, and I know next week we're going to talk about tradition. Do mm -hmm. you guys want to add anything else about scripture before we, we go? Oh, goodness. I mean, what is there to, <laughs> what is there to be said that can fit in the next few minutes? <laughs> I, I mean, just... Scripture is the God-breathed revelation in written form that we should all cherish. It is all profitable for instruction and teaching and disputing error. And er everything Scripture claims for Scripture, we as Catholics believe it. Because believe it or not, it was our first generation that wrote a lot of those words down. But we have to always remember scripture was never meant to stand on its own scripture was written for a community it was written for a faith and as soon as you rip it from that community and that faith you know it's almost not scripture anymore it becomes whatever we want it to be and so much evil has been unleashed in this world because men have twisted and turned scripture from the faith and community which produced it to instead be a reflection of whatever idols they've set up for themselves. So don't do that. <laughs> what about you, Marcus? Uh, for me, I would just, uh, just briefly mention this. So from 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brothers, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And to me, that tells me that there has to be some continuity from apostles and, of course, the, their successors, in addition to having the foundation stone, you could call it, of Scripture itself. And then from there we have, you know, of course, the flourishing of Christianity for the next 2,000 years. So Scripture, of course, is important. Scripture is, is useful, as James had uh, said so from quoting from Timothy. And uh, we just have to... Make sure we know the bounds of uh, of not only our own interpretation, but of course to to know when we are involved in false teachings and when we're aligned with the truth. And I'd I'd like just to to caution people that when you're when you're reading your Bible, don't read into it what you want to to get out of it. Read it for what it says. Read it for the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Um, go back and look at what the, the church father said. Go back and look at what the magisterium teaches us in the catechism and other places. Take a look at those things and really do what Paul said, you know, when he said, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, 
we need to we need to caution ourselves to always be careful when we try to interpret scripture for ourselves uh, because again we all have our biases and uh, we all have you know our preconceived ideas so try not to go into that and uh, hope everybody has a great week and we'll talk to you next time bye Thank you.